Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 2024 Santa Fe, available early 2024. Now is the time to accelerate innovation. T-Mobile for Business is powering Formula One Las Vegas Grand Prix operations and epic fan experiences with secure, reliable 5G connectivity. Because an event this big and this fast deserves a network that can set the pace. See what our 5G advanced network solutions can do for your business at tmobile.com slash now. View 5G device coverage and access details at tmobile.com. Hey, y'all. Today we're featuring a conversation with the world's preeminent banjo player, Bela Fleck. Over the course of his four-decade career, Bela's won numerous Grammys in a variety of surprising genres, including jazz, Latin, pop, and classical. Just last year, his latest release, My Bluegrass Heart, scored the Grammy for Best Bluegrass Album. In addition to Bela's innovative style and expert technique, he is also an advocate for keeping the banjo's rich historical tradition alive. In 2008, Bela made a pilgrimage to Africa to trace the origins of the banjo in the brilliant documentary Throw Down Your Heart. On today's episode, Bruce Hedlund talks to Bela about growing up in New York City where he first fell in love with the banjo while watching, of all things, the Beverly Hillbillies. Bela also talks about how jazz giants like Chick Corea and Charlie Parker influenced his highly technical style. And Bela explains why he believes the banjo is far superior to the guitar. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Bruce Hedlum with Bela Fleck. Now you've won, I think, 15 Grammys. Something like that. There's yeah, a lot of Grammys. Yeah. I was going to say, you've been nominated in more Grammy categories than anybody else in the world, which is kind of incredible. You've yeah. done pop. Country, yeah, it's, it's a shock. Yeah, <laughs> and apparently Latin. I didn't know you'd done that. Yeah, with Chick Corea, we got we won a Latin Grammy. So I asked him about how you know. Do you count count the Latin Grammy as one of your Grammys? And said, Yeah, it's a Grammy, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so whenever people ask me how many I have, I I don't. You know, they they said, Well, we checked, and you said you only have fifteen. I said, Well, I don't. Doesn't matter. I mean, but Chick said it was. The yeah. Latin one counted, so I say 16 because yeah. Korea said it, but I don't, it's fine. One would have been fine. None yeah. would have been fine. You've got a lot, but in more categories, classical, all these other things. Well, that's the fun thing, world music and classical and things like that and places that the banjo isn't typically heard. That's Those are the ones that I get 
uh, excited about usually. Although just now winning the one for the Bluegrass album, I've never won one for Bluegrass albums after all of this time. Okay. So there was something really sweet about returning to the music and, and p- putting together like a very community album that brought together a lot of different age groups of, of excellent players and uh, and doing my, my own music and winning a Grammy with it was sweet. I'd like to say I'm too cool to care, but I... I it meant a lot to me. It was a good feeling. Well, you feeling. put bluegrass in the title. It's my bluegrass heart. You yeah. did win the, the yeah, Grammy for it. A lot of great players. It's it's kind of a shred fest well, for our guitarists out there. There's some there's some ferocious playing. In there's this. some ferocious playing. I don't like the term shred because to me it's like oh, all you're doing is playing fast when you think of shredding. It doesn't usually mean it's necessarily musical. So if it's musical shredding, I don't mind. But yeah, I mean, I want it to be music. Now, if it's fast, you know, it's still got to be really good. There's a lot, I mean, a lot of variety in the songs on this new album. Something like Hug Point sounds very Irish. Mm -hmm. The other song that jumped out at me was the Psalm 136. Uh, Yeah. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. Okay. So I was, uh, I was planning to go to, uh, to Africa to do this documentary called Throw Down Your Heart, which I I did get to do. uh, And I was researching before I went over, like what kind of you know, where am I going and what music is going on there? And I was going to Uganda as part of the trip, even though Banjo doesn't come from Uganda. I had an in uh, to get in, you know, into Uganda and Tanzania. So I decided to go there as well. And I found this recording called Jewish Uganda. And um, there was this, the song started with these boys, I think it's all boys, singing this psalm, this beautiful psalm, probably in a church or in a little chapel somewhere. In, in Uganda. And one of the guys from the church was in the States and I got in touch with them. And I asked him if I could come to Uganda and record with these boys. He said, absolutely not. We don't want to have anything to do with anything commercial. So I couldn't go, mm-hmm. but the tune stuck with me. And so um, I, I made it into a solo piece that I would play once in a while, but I could, never quite got it happening. And then when Chris Thiele was coming to town to record these a couple of songs with Billy Strings, I thought, well, I've got them here. I want to get more than two songs out of the day. And so I asked him if he would do this duet with me. I sent him the music. He said, great. you know. And then I think we started recording it at you know midnight or something. And we worked on it till three in the morning. And at the other end of it, we had this bottle of Mersalt that we were going to open mm-hmm. and drink. And that's what that's what we did. But we sat and we just worked it through. We, we, we worked up this very complex... Uh, duet arrangement of it and um, just had a blast. And then we had this great bottle of wine. When you conceive of this project, I know you said when you sit down and play with people, you'll know if it's going to work or not. Were these all people you'd played with before? Some were and some weren't. I've made a couple of records back in the old days. Uh, I guess in 88, I made a record called Drive and it had kind of the who's who of that time. Mm-hmm. It was Sam Bush, Jerry Douglas, Tony Rice on guitar, Mark O'Connor, Stuart Duncan, Mark Schatz on bass. Those were the fiddle players, uh, Stuart Duncan and Mark. And it was like a position statement of like pushing the music forward for that time. I guess I can say that at this point. And then I went off and, you know, did my own thing for a long time with the Flectones and tried to get out of the bluegrass world completely. And then around the end of the 90s, I made another record called Bluegrass Sessions mm-hmm. um, that was with the same guys, but I was able to include Earl Scruggs and John Hartford and Vassar Clements, who were, you know, on the elder side. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I hadn't done anything since then. And it had right? been like 20 something years since I'd done bluegrass. And I was you know, playing with Chick Corea, very happily exploring and playing with Zakir Hussein and trying to write orchestra music and trying to break out, you know, break out of the, 
the shackles of what people think banjo should be. And just because I'm curious, I like music, I want to know it, but I want to know it through the banjo. People, people used to say when I was in high school, why don't you learn to play the saxophone or the piano? It's like, well, I, I like the banjo. Why do I have to play the saxophone if I like jazz? Why do I have to do that? So mm-hmm. it's always through the banjo that I learn about music. So did you, do you think people were pigeonholing you or pigeonholing bluegrass music? Everything. I mean, banjo was a laughing stock when I started playing it. And I always thought it was serious business. You know, I, I was never, never thought it was a funny a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was serious, deadly serious, but people would laugh at you. And it was because at that time, the banjo was um, the hee-haw show. Right. You know, which had Roy Clark playing on it. I can't tell you how many people have come up to me, great jazz musicians. Oh, I like the banjo. I used to like Roy Clark, you know, and I was like, well, Roy Clark is not really the top tier of banjo players. Honestly, he was just a great showman. He was good. Yeah. But at any rate, the, there was a hee-haw, which was, was Roy Clark. And then there was Deliverance. Which, you know, involved everything we know about the movie Deliverance, and but it had this incredible banjo scene, which, you know, also stamped a nail in the coffin of, you know, what people thought about who played the banjo and who shouldn't. And, you know, uh, now it was, you know, clearly a, a, a white Southern instrument rather than a black, uh, you know, an instrument that the slaves brought over. Mm-hmm. And between that and, and even the Beverly Hillbillies, you know, which was very... Although the hillbillies were the smarty were the smarty pants in that show, sure, they, it was still it, it locked in that feeling that that's what the banjo was. But at least it was Earl Scruggs, you know. At least it was great music. Yeah. So that was something. There was also Cat Baloo, if you remember that movie. Yeah, yeah. Had and I can't remember who played in. That. I think the banjo was a four string banjo in that because there's the whole jazz banjo age, of course. You know, banjo was part of jazz even before bluegrass. Banjo was the what what later the guitar took over its position in jazz. But we forget about that. Occasionally you run into somebody and they say, oh, banjo, banjo jazz, sure. Banjo was in jazz from the beginning. What's the problem with that, you know? Was that before they had amplification because the banjo just, you could do a, you could do a rhythm? Well, I'll tell you one thing. When you strum a banjo, it's loud. And yeah. you can walk down the street in New Orleans and strum a banjo next to a trumpet and be heard just fine, where if you strummed a guitar, you yeah. might not hear it so well. But I think it had more to do with that sense that banjo was a symbol of slavery, you know, for a lot of black people, mm-hmm. you know, and people made fun of the banjo and and its role. And people put on blackface and imitated slaves, did songs. This was like the thing to do in the sure. early 1900s. Put on black, white folks put on blackface, get banjos and sing songs about how great it was on the old plantation. Right. So by the time the music started to move along and yeah, banjo was around and so it was in the music, but as soon as the guitar showed up, and it was a possibility. They dropped it like a hot potato, and all of a sudden it was like excised from the black world. Uh, it was like, we don't want to have anything to do with that. And in fact, there was a banjo player named uh, Danny Barker. And Danny Barker, I met him, he was playing with Wynton Marsalis, and he's one of the guys who was playing banjo and had to switch to guitar when banjo went out of fashion. He was playing with Cab Calloway, mm-hmm. and he told me that he, he told, hey, Cab, the Deering Banjo Company will give me a free top-of-the-line banjo if you let me play it in one song on the Cab Calloway show. And Cab said, absolutely not. We've been trying to get away from that old thing for a long, long time. He wanted nothing to do with the banjo in in his in that period. And so uh, all the banjo players were out of work. They all had to learn to play guitar if they wanted to, you know, have a career playing a stringed instrument in jazz. And then you got Charlie Christian and... Yeah. 
And it wasn't based on the electrification as much as it was one particular recording, a first recording of where where guitar was played instead of banjo that had this huge impact. And apparently it was like a year later, banjo was dead in that world. But then meanwhile, Earl Scruggs was trying to figure out how to get that third finger in, you know, out in the mountains uh, in in North Carolina, along with another, uh, you know, other people in his region were trying to figure that out and they were stepping up. And then as the years have gone by, Earl Scruggs, you know, he spawned all these other banjo players who had to do something different from him. And eventually people like uh, were started bringing jazz into bluegrass playing in a whole diff- with a whole different technique. So you had, you know, Don Reno playing jazz licks and uh, Eddie Adcock and then Bill Keith doing all this jazz stuff with a whole different style on the banjo and Tony Trishka uh, here in New York. And these New York guys brought a lot of ideas to the banjo. And so it started to approach a jazz kind of knowledge and a jazz sort of um, language, but from a whole other direction on a whole different banjo than what they played in jazz, a five-string banjo, which is tuned to an open chord rather than tuned in fourths. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's a, a very different voicing. I've never seen this described, but anytime I hear banjos in other contexts, they seem to add a lot of pace to a song. Yeah. The last verse of, of Take, Take it, easy it Easy by right. the Eagles. Like, I think there's something that music's been trying to do for a long time. And you, you hear it in pop music. You certainly hear it in things like Steve Reich and a lot of that music, which is this kind of perpetual motion. Yeah. It's because the banjo doesn't have sustain. So the way that we create the illusion of sustain is to do uh, continuous arpeggios and you know mm-hmm. licks, and, and we, ne- we don't stop till the end of the song. And it's hard for banjo players to stop. It's one of the hardest things to do is to start playing out of nothing in time. From, from a dead stop. So mm-hmm. we'd keep playing and we have these different techniques we do to keep our hands moving during songs. But one of the hardest, again, it's it's rare to find a banjo player who will stop and lay out for part of the song and come back in. But that's one of the most effective things you can do is like, and take it easy, the effectiveness is, is it came in out of nowhere mm-hmm. in double time. And so it provides all this drive, but it also provides a, a, sound, a sonic change, which you don't yeah. get if you're playing constantly. Mm-hmm. But guitar players do Travis picking, for example. Right. But it doesn't have the same effect. Why is that so strong on a, on well, a banjo? It's because banjos are better than guitars. So <laughs> okay. anything that they do is going to be better. So there's that. Uh, but I can't think of another instrument that really, all the other instruments, you're very conscious of the attack. You know, some fiddling, for example, they try and get a certain kind of rhythm right. going, like if you get, but uh, it doesn't have... I think it's a percussion instrument. Banjo is yeah. half percussion instrument and a half melodic instrument. So it's, um, you could play that way on a piano. If you came in playing the same thing you did on a, on a, on a banjo in the same register uh, and, and played it extremely with a lot of clarity, it could have a similar effect. There are other instruments that could do that, but the banjo just does that naturally. It's what mm-hmm. it does. You know, it, it, it comes in. And so you, your sense of time is incre- incredibly critical as a banjo player because you really can feel it when it's out of, out of the pocket. It, it, it's so clear. So if you're not solid when you come in uh, into a track or into a spot, you know, it, it, can, it can mess it up. But if it comes in good and solid, it's like, wow, it's yeah. like the light's coming on. Do you want to play a bit? I'm sure. Banjo is the best if you're playing all the time. That's when you play good. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes you, when you, you don't. You practice every day? And sometimes I let it go because I've got kids. I've got a four-year-old and a nine-year-old. So when I come off the road like I just did, all of a sudden it's like time to do my share. Yeah. You know, so then the banjo stays in the, in the case till a few days before the tour. And then I... And then I cram 
Okay.
That's Bela Fleck playing Hug Point from his new album, My Bluegrass Heart. We'll be right back after a short break with more from Bela Fleck and Bruce Headlam. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 2024 Santa Fe, available early 2024. Do you have a digital mindset? Check out Season 3 of This is Digital. Season 3 of This is Digital goes behind the scenes to reveal how digital trends show up in everyday decisions and actions, including driving profitable growth in enterprise software and how the new sports fan experience can drive revenue. Featuring guests like Chris D'Agostino of Databricks and Scott Crable of Tama Bravo. Check out the latest and greatest on Season 3 of This is Digital and learn more at westmonroe.com. We're back with more from Bela Fleck and Bruce Hedlund. Did you grow up in a musical family? Well, music was a big part of our family, but there weren't any musicians Mm -hmm. uh, when I was young. My father was, uh, it's a a complicated story. Uh, My father was musical, but he wasn't around. He and my mother split up when I was about one or two, and he was uh, uh, completely absent, not even in contact. Um, I didn't meet him until until I was in my 40s, but he was a big fan of you know, classical music, which is why he named me Bela Anton Leos Fleck. And um, he named me after these composers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, he, but there was no influence from him. But then my mother married uh, a wonderful guy who is a cellist named Joe Palladino, who was a guy from Brooklyn who played the cello in the army and then went into the school systems, the guidance councils, guidance systems of Brooklyn. And so he was playing a classical stuff around the house when I got into my, you know, from maybe 10 years or so on. He, but again, I didn't, I didn't really relate to it. It wasn't my thing, but I liked it. It was cool, but mm-hmm. it, it seeped in. So by the time I got my first banjo, which was pretty late when I was 15, you know, I had a pretty broad musical interest. And I heard the banjo when I was maybe four or five, but I never thought I could ever play it. So I never tried to get one, but I was a fan from then on. Mm-hmm. What was your first banjo? It was a K, just a black, no, no name on it, but it was looked a lot like a K, $50 banjo my grandfather got me the day mm-hmm. before I started high school. Did Sears sell K? Probably. I think so, yeah. Yeah, Sears also sold Gibsons. They had knockoff banjos called Calcroydons um, that were like, just like this old banjo of mine. It was pre-war flathead from the 30s, but they, they put them under different names and sold them mm-hmm. different ways. The great banjos really came in the 30s. That's when the, the great banjos came. Why was that? It had something to do with the metal. It had something to do with the war effort. Um, they were trying to figure out how to make it cheaper. And they started making certain parts with pot metal instead of expensive brass and ma- making them with less parts. And something about it sounded better. And so when Earl Scruggs was trying to figure out what he wanted to play, he picked the best banjo he could find you know, around, which was a Gibson Mastertone at the time. And honestly, banjo was, music was starting to go down at that point. Mm-hmm. But a lot of these instruments were uh, 
were around and, uh, you know, again, easy to find at that time, relatively cheap. But they had this great sound um, that, that has not really been equaled. So there's no modern banjo you would play that you would... You know, there there are some pretty good ones, but they and, and I'm even involved with a, a model. Uh, the Gold Tone is making that's sort of modeled after this, and they've mm-hmm. you know they've done the best they can, and everyone's doing the best they can. But nobody has cracked the code of what makes a pre-war banjo what it is. I, I, I would never claim that these new banjos are are in the class of of the Gibsons from the 30s, mm-hmm. and that's the one I play every day still. How many good, of those do you have? I probably have a dozen something around of those, but I have you know more than a hundred banjos around the house they sort of collect they and i don't i'm not good at getting rid of them they, they, i have an infestation you could say yeah i like having them though and people say invest in something you know you know yeah. and so over the years like i bought them i started buying them what like when i first got this one they were very hard to find they were just mm-hmm. not not around but over the years sometimes suddenly they're available maybe some you know older folks are passing and they they get back on the market or something and so i started buying them and they they kept going up and up so everything that i bought early on was worth way more than i cost you know than i'd paid and then as the years went on i started paying more for them and then they weren't worth as much you know as mm-hmm. in other words the investment wasn't as good right but they still uh, you know appreciated I'm still ahead of the game if if yeah. money matters, which is still a good question. Everybody's buying gold and crypto now. They're, yeah. they're selling so their banjos. I would have thought that this investment would have been you know gold for life and that I could pass it on. But I think that at a certain point, people that really know about these instruments are passing. So they don't actually, you know, unless younger players uh, can afford to get them. And, you know, and this one, you know, to get an instrument like this, we're talking about $100,000 or $80,000, something in that that mode. And if it's all original from the 30s, uh, you know, maybe $150,000 was the price a few years back. But now it's dropping a bit. Do you tour with this one as well? Yeah. So oh, a lot of you're times, not one of those guys that saves it for the studio. No, you? no. I mean, in the studio, what I get to do is I get to like go through my closet and go, I wonder which ancient instrument would sound good on this song, mm-hmm. you know, and I get to do that. But the truth is they don't all handle travel that well. But this one I've traveled with since 1981, and um, I always keep it set up, you know, to, to play. And flying with it, they're very heavy to carry around. Yeah. And if it goes under the plane, you're sunk. You know, so I often buy tickets for it or find, you know, I have to have strategies when I'm traveling for how I'm going to get the banjo on. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's a pain very, in the ass. Very serious. It's a pain, but it's worth it when I get there and I'm playing this instrument. Mm-hmm. They call them flatheads because there are banjos that have raised heads where the top raises up and there's a smaller resonating surface of the mm-hmm. skin. But right. a flathead has a larger resonating surface, and that creates a deeper tone. And Earl Scruggs, even though you might have a, in your head that banjos are bright, he had a pretty rich sound, especially in certain periods of his life. Why are all banjo players obsessed with Earl Scruggs? Earl Scruggs is the trigger that turns banjo players on. You know, if you're if you're a, a dormant banjo player that, that could be a banjo player, you have to hear Earl Scruggs to suddenly become a banjo-seeking zombie. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was how it was for me. I grew up here in New York City and uh, on 100th Street, West End, and then I heard the banjo on the Beverly Hillbillies, and it flipped the trigger in me. And I, you know, had no interest in country music, folk music, anything like that. I was a Beatles kid, you know, a New York yeah. City Beatles kid, Upper West Side. But I heard the banjo, and it just, I was like, what is that? I got to know what that is. And it's interesting that for most of the people that become bluegrass banjo players, like professionals or just, you know, people that love that instrument and get good at it, it's always Earl Scruggs. It's almost never anybody else hmm. that flips the switch. Did he 
do new things with the banjo, or did he just perfect what it was already there? Did he? Was oh something no, he sound? started this whole. He he didn't start it, but he perfected this way of playing. There are other people that did it around this time. This would have been, you know, nineteen maybe twenties when he was coming up with it on the farm in Flint Hill, uh, North Carolina. There were other people experimenting with adding a third finger because nobody played with three fingers plucking mm-hmm. um, much before that time period, and so there were other people who were, you know also working at it. And you could find people that did it even before in earlier banjo ages, before the whole period of the banjo. So anyway, this three-finger style that Earl Scruggs came up with was adding a finger to a two-finger style. And it created the opportunity for all this rippling. You know, you got three fingers on five strings playing in 4-4. Four, four. You've got all these threes and twos happening over the beat. And all of a sudden you get syncopation like crazy and this drive that he played with. And it wouldn't have mattered except he was so good. You know, anyone could have taken the claim that of, you know, inventing three-finger playing around that time, but he was the best. You know, he was so good. He had this galvanizing sound, and it made you stop in your tracks, and you had to hear it. And talking about the Beatles, he joined Bill Monroe's band, and Bill Monroe was kind of a big deal on the Grand Ole Opry, and so he got to come on the Grand Ole Opry and play with Bill Monroe, and that was like the first time people heard bluegrass. That was the moment bluegrass happened to the world is when they heard Earl Scruggs playing with Bill Monroe. Lester Flatt was also in the band. People talk about it being a Beatles reaction. The room erupted. No one had ever heard anything like this style of banjo playing before. It was nothing. There was Nothing had ever been uh, done like that. And um, uh, it made them into superstars in, in the South and anywhere where you could hear that show. And then it it just spread. So not only was he the most well known because of his you know his time with Bill Monroe and then starting Flat and Scruggs, he was the best. Everybody still stops in their tracks if you're a banjo player to hear hear him play things we've heard him play our whole lives. You know it's just do, got do that you, magic. Do you still hear that magic in his playing? I do. I do. I can listen to the Beverly Hillbillies the first thing I heard and just go, <laughs> wow. And I you know I know it's a joke and I know it's part of the stereotypes that gets you know that I hate. I always seem to be fighting against, but I just, it's the magic. He had the magic. And I got to know him in his late years. He lived about two miles from where I lived uh, in Nashville, and we got to be pretty close in his late later time, you know, when he's just sitting on the couch. He's very funny, too. He's a neat guy. Could he still play? Yeah, he, he played. He'd get out of his banjo. We'd sit and play. He always take my banjo and play it, because I have a weird setup, like I have an arched fingerboard, like a violin, you know, or something. And... um and he he really liked it, oh. and I also keep my banjo real fat, and his was kind of bright, and so he he would take it from me, he wouldn't give it back to me, and play, and he would sound amazing and play. You know, he rushed, he was always always ahead, and that was part of the bluegrass drive. But he his rushing got a little out of control later on. But it's still he played things, he surprised you all the time with things he played. I've never heard that about bluegrass. You're always you're always pushing the beat a little bit. Yeah, the thing about bluegrass time, we call it, which is also this big deal to us bluegrass musicians, is the way it feels. And it's like a magic carpet ride where everyone's pushing the rhythm, but hopefully you're not actually speeding up, but you're playing on the front end of the of the beat. And, you know, we talk about that with drummers all the time. You know, he's a back-of-the-beat kind of guy or he's a front-of-the-beat kind of guy. Right. Uh, in a perfect world, you wouldn't pick up, but you'd still have that feeling that it was you know, moving forward, and we call that drive in bluegrass mm-hmm. music. And so I always try opposite. to apply it, I apply it to everything I do. I, you know, if I'm playing, when I was playing with Chick Corea or Zakir Hussein, I always try to play with that forward lean, but again, without speeding up. A little speeding up's okay, but if it goes past a certain amount, it's not okay. You know, I remember, and I didn't really understand at the time, reading about the Stax beat, the Stax record label. Mm. I think Al Jackson was the drummer, and he was always a little 
particularly the, I guess the fourth beat was always a little behind. So bluegrass yeah. is always, you're pushing a little bit. A bluegrass is always pushing, yeah. And the soloist leads the charge. In, in that way, it's similar to jazz in that the soloist dictates how the, the other players play. So the, mm-hmm. way that, the way that you would play as a banjo player behind the fiddle uh, is one way, and the way you'd play behind the mandolin player is a different way, and the way you'd, you'd play behind the vocalist is another way. And whoever's closest to the microphone has the power you know, because it was a music that was like a one mic music. You would, yeah. It was for performance. It was live. It wasn't, you know, roots music that people played around the house. It was performance music. It was built to be performed on radio, uh, in theaters, on one microphone. So the person who's up front is louder, so automatically everyone follows the lead. So if the mm-hmm. banjo's up front, you're going to play to his groove. Maybe he's got a little more straight eights. Maybe he's got a little more bounce since swinging is playing. Fiddle player comes up. He's got a whole different groove. The band changes. A good bluegrass band knows how to... Um, do this dance. The, every verse, every chorus, every instrumental has a different feel, and they know how to make each thing happen. And uh, it's like, I don't know, I think it's like a, a great sports team, you know, a great basketball team passing to each other and mm-hmm. following the lead of the person who's got the ball. Yeah. But the thing about it is the banjo is facing away from you. So if you're standing up playing the banjo, you can't hear yourself, but you're bludgeoning everyone around you. <laughs> and the fiddle player who's got the fiddle right by his ear, if you're standing next to a fiddle player, you can't hear yourself at all. All you can hear is a fiddle because your ears are near the fiddle. Yeah. So it's it's an odd thing. Banjo players, you know, playing too loud is partly because they can't hear themselves, even though they've got the loudest instrument in the room. So you you didn't study at college. You went straight to playing, didn't you? Just Yeah, you I think started... if, if Berkeley at that point had been taking, you know, banjo majors like they are now, I would have gone somewhere like that or East Appalachian State uh, or there's one in Texas where you could major on banjo in the last decades, but not back then. So I just went and joined a band out of high school and I got lucky because um, my mom and my stepdad had a unexpected child when I was a senior in high school. Mm-hmm. And I keep remembering my mother's a teacher as well. And my stepfather, was a, he was actually the head of guidance for the Brooklyn school uh, systems. And I got through high school and they never noticed that I didn't uh, apply to college. Oh. Because they were just so dazed by having a, a child, a baby in the house. And I got, <laughs> so at the end, all of a sudden they realized, wait, where are you going? And I was like, uh, it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> you know, and and, and um, you you knew you wanted to be a musician. Though? I didn't want to go to college and spend my time. I wanted to go play. You know, I wanted to play the banjo. We have to take one last break, and then we're back with more from Bela Fleck. Okay, picture this: it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 2024 Santa Fe, available early 2024. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. 
Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024. J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. Do you have a digital mindset? Check out season three of This Is Digital. Season three of This Is Digital goes behind the scenes to reveal how digital trends show up in everyday decisions and actions, including driving profitable growth in enterprise software and how the new sports fan experience can drive revenue. Featuring guests like Chris D'Agostino of Databricks and Scott Crable of Tama Bravo. Check out the latest and greatest on season three of This Is Digital and learn more at westmonroe.com. We're back with the remainder of Bruce Hedlum's conversation with Bela Fleck. I mean, I I knew you heard the banjo when you were four or five. You loved it. Yeah. You got one when you were 15. Yeah. At what point did you say, well, the banjo is going to be my life? Was there a moment? It wasn't a voluntary thing. It was, uh, it was an involuntary thing. It was like from the moment the banjo was in my hands, I didn't care about anything else. I would go to school and I would be in a cold sweat waiting to get home to my banjo. I think it it did a lot of things for me, I guess, psychologically. It gave me something to focus on, something to care about, an escape. I don't know. I mean, not like my life was all that terrible. It wasn't. It was a perfectly good middle-class life on the Upper West Side. But um, something about it was just so compelling, and I, I couldn't put it down. You know, after school, there'd be a hang with kids, and I could go for a few minutes before I just had to leave. I just had to go home and play. And I started taking the banjo to school, playing between classes, cutting classes and hanging out at City College. I went to music and art high school when it was up in Harlem. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of music surrounded by music, you know. And the, and the folks that I went to high school with, you know, like uh, Omar Hakim was there with me and oh. uh, Kenny Washington and uh, Marcus Miller. We were all there together. And uh, Don Byron, all these guys had, have had these great careers uh, playing jazz and rock and so forth. Mm-hmm. Were you tr- starting to play jazz then on the banjo? Yeah, I was trying. I had a, my teacher, uh, my last teacher, Tony Trishka, was doing a lot of exploring with the banjo. He was really the guy who said, hey, you can do anything. You don't have to do that. I noticed when I went to high school, if I could play Led Zeppelin lick, everybody thought that was cool, much cooler than if I'd play them a Flat and Scruggs tune. Right. So I noticed that that got me more attention. And so that that was interesting. Or Grateful Dead riff or something. That was more cool. But I was just interested in the musical ideas that were in all these different musics and trying to figure out how to learn them mm-hmm. on the banjo. It was fun. And then, I mean, you started doing your own albums pretty early. Yeah, I, I moved to Boston right out of high school in 76. And um, I think 79, I made my first album. So I think I was still mm-hmm. 20 when I made the first record, maybe 21. Wow. I mean, you must have had great chops at that point uh it was kind of weird like okay so tony who was uh arguably the greatest banjo player of the of the period i only say arguably because he was such a a progressive so some people might debate me but i don't really think you can debate me on the talent and the the quality of his music but he was my teacher and after a couple of years of playing people said they couldn't tell the difference between him and me like if we were somewhere and we were both playing that was their compliment. They said, hey, 
I was listening to you guys play. I closed my eyes. I couldn't tell who was who. I was such a, I, I copied him so intently that I could do most, I mean, I not the years of life and humanity and practice and creativity that he had, but I could, I, I learned quite a lot of what he could do. And so that made me an unusual uh, banjo player because nobody could really do that back then but him. So now I had all of his toolkit to draw from. I'm not saying I was Tony, but I was darn... I really learned a lot of it, you know. Yeah. Um, so then, I, then the thing was, I suddenly realized, oh, there already is a Tony Trishka. I got to find my thing. And then I started very consciously exploring things that he didn't do and tr- looking for the things that I could do that would be my unique stamp on it. Mm-hmm. And then I immediately went into bands and started, you know, touring. And I've been doing it ever since. What was it you found in your playing? What what distinguishes your playing from other banjo players? Well, Tony, and I'm jealous of these qualities in his playing, he's a primitive. Like, he can draw on some theoretical knowledge, but he figures out things in a very primitive kind of way. And it's like a high-tech primitive thing that he does. I am more of the kind of guy who wants to know every scale. Like, if I have to, if I learn a scale, I have to learn it in every key, major and minor, all the way up and down the, the banjo from the bottom open string to the last fret of the high string. I wanted to do all that. He hadn't done that. So when I started to do that and started learning like legit jazz repertoire and language and classical things, suddenly I had um, some knowledge on the banjo that was different, mm-hmm. you know, that was new to the instrument. Some, I, I, don't, know, I don't know how to say what's new because I mean, you know, in the 20s, there are people playing jazz stuff on the banjo that still hasn't been equaled, but it was a different banjo. It was a different tuning as we were talking about before. Who were the jazz players you were listening to at that point that informed your uh, playing? Well, when I started playing, I mean, I certainly listened to Joe Pass and Oscar Peterson and people like that. I was a real big fan of Charlie Parker. I loved Charlie Parker's playing. And for me, Charlie Parker had the same rhythmic intensity of Earl Scruggs. And then one day at jazz appreciation class in high school, the teacher, his name is Justin DiCiocio. He's a great jazz teacher. He played Chick Corea's recording of Spain. Yeah. And that blew my mind because like the sound of that electric piano, there was something about it, all the short stabby notes. I was like, I don't think I could play like Stan Getz, but I might be able to play like that on the banjo. You know, I don't oh, think I can do long. Like the staccato. So staccato. Yeah. yeah. And he was all about time. And also he, you know, there are pianists who, you know, run up and down the, the piano, you know, uh, constantly. And, you know, you can't do that on the banjo. I don't have the range. But if you go, dig it, dig it, you know, like he would do mm-hmm. these back and forth things with his two hands. That I could do. Short phrases that were very rhythmic, like a lot of monk influence and in that he was very rhythmically focused on playing these unique rhythmic ideas with a lot of intensity. I could see how that might work. And then you did it on your first album. I did record that song. But Spain, I went to yeah. see him when I was in high school, like at the Beacon Theater with Return to Forever. And that blew my mind, you know, hear, hearing him play with Stanley Clark and, and Lenny White and, and Al Demiola. It was like, and th- imagine, you know, like some people say, oh, that's not the greatest music or whatever. But like, b- imagine being a 17-year-old, never hearing anything like that and walking in, sitting down at the Beacon Theater and hearing that. I mean, it was unbelievable, and I never was the same. It, was, it had that impact that Earl Scruggs had. Like, the three people for me are Earl Scruggs, Charlie Parker, and, and Chick Corea. And then there were guys like Pat Martino playing around the city, too, around that time. And I got to see him in person a few times. And he also played these long lines, long, very rhythmic, you know, rhythmically solid lines. And it also reminded me of banjo playing. I was like, I think I could play like that, too. Not that I had the ability, but that that would be possible on the banjo. Long, the long lines that jazz players play, the jazz guitar players play in particular, because they don't have to take a breath. 
and you mm-hmm. don't have to take a breath on the banjo. So again, you're going back to the perpetual motion idea that you were bringing up before. That's what the banjo does really well. And you do hear that a lot in jazz and classical music, music with a lot of space, because you're not used to hearing the banjo have that kind of space. And it can be very plaintive and beautiful when you figure out how to leave that space. Mm-hmm. So when you did your classical record, that was an example. You, you did uh, you did the Chopin, you did famous cello suite. I did, yeah. Yeah. That's right, yeah. But you don't have sustain, and you don't have that great a dynamic range. Is that is that fair to say? That's very true. Very disappointing, but very true. So the thing about that record is, you know, down in Nashville, you have these thing called songwriter demos. Like if you're making a, a vocal record, you get a pile of tapes from different songwriters mm-hmm. and you pop them in your cassette till you hear one you like and then you write down oh I like that one yeah. and so I kind of did that when I was doing Perpetual Motion I got all of these recordings of classical music and I, I would put pop them on in my car CDs and flip through until I heard something and every time I heard something I liked I'd write it down I had a little pad in my car and almost inevitably I was drawn to these moto perpetuos long lines long cascading things that went on and on and on and that kept unfolding and unfolding and unfolding like Bach you know mm-hmm. or or Paganini or you know a Chopin things and so that's part of why we named the album a moto perpetuo because to me most of the pieces on there are moto perpetuos of one kind or another whether it's you know Children's Corner by Debussy or you know or Bach things you know, they just mm-hmm. keep on unfolding the story's not over and then right. it stops. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can't get a banjo player to stop. Maybe yeah. that's, well, maybe until, it's, maybe it's your ticket to immortality. Till the end. They never. That's when they stop, when they die. So tell me, going back again, you played with Tony Rice on, uh, Cold on the Shoulder. Cold on the Shoulder, which is this album people in all kinds of worlds love, but it's a, this great, I guess, would you call it bluegrass? He was a... He, well, I think it's pretty, it's definitely extended bluegrass, mm-hmm. you know? And so he was a hero to me because he also had that incredible rhythm, uh, rhythmic ability on the guitar. And he was had an interest in jazz and all these different things. And he would bring them into his bluegrass, but he also had a very musical vocal kind of quality. He, like he was a great singer, but he chose songs that were kind of deep sometimes and had harmony to them, you know, which was very unusual for bluegrass, which is, tends to be very simple harmonically he liked things that were more explorative and so um when i got to play on that record it was a dream come true it was like i was finally playing with the a-team sam bush was playing uh, vassar clements was there jerry douglas was there tony rice was there and we all just cut it in a circle and he sang and played everything live we all played live and it was unbelievable how good that music felt i played i played on four tracks that day either three or four and every one of them had this dance like it was so easy to play banjo with him because of the way he played rhythm his rhythm guitar playing was like a magic carpet ride that you get on and all of a sudden you could do things that you couldn't do anywhere else so after that session i was like if i could do a record with this guy and sam bush because he sam has this way of chopping the rhythm on the mandolin and Tony is so free-floating with his, his his rhythm playing. The combination of those two guys playing together, you have all of the freedom and the imagination of Tony Rice, but it's it's put into a rhythmic context by Sam Bush's chop. So once those guys start playing together, it's magic. And feathering the banjo into that is like the easiest thing in the world. So when I made that first record we're talking about, Drive, that's the band that I wanted and was lucky enough to get and i had those two guys playing together and jerry douglas the greatest dobro player and these great fiddle players Mm -hmm. you described it a little bit but you know one of my favorite albums of yours is the album you did with chick korea 
The Enchantment. Yeah. How did you make that work? It's a very unusual sounding album. It's a puzzle. What happened there? Because, you know, as you know, he's a formative influence, like even more so than, you know, Scruggs or Tony Trishka or Charlie Parker, who weren't part of my life. He was a guy that I revered as, you know, so good, I would never, you know, could never imagine playing with him, but, you know, an inspiration for life. I was, I followed everything he did and I always wished I could play like him, you know, learn from him and stuff. So at a certain point, the Flectones got going, you know, some decades later after falling in love with his music and got a Grammy nomination, right? Mm -hmm. And got to go to the Grammys where Chick Corea, one of the reigning Grammy count kings, it was and got to meet him and talk to him. He said, "Oh yeah, I saw you guys. I saw your video, Sinister Minister. I like that. I like that. You know." So I got the nerve to ask him if he would play on a track for me, and he did. To my surprise, agree. And I got to do something with him. And I thought, well, okay, now my life is made. You know, I, mm-hmm. that's I'll never bother you again. Was what I thought. You know, it was an album called uh, Tales from the Acoustic Planet, the first one I made, and Branford Marsalis also played on that. And I got them together. They'd never played together on the track. Was that right? It was a neat thing, yeah. They, they just sat around and did old jazz in the corner till it was time to, to close the studio down. They were having so much fun. So some years later, I was playing at Newport Jazz Festival with Stanley Clark and John Luke Pawnee. We had this trio for a little while. And Ted Curlin came over to me. He's the agent that booked all these guys, you know. And he came over to me and he said, um, Bela... Chick Corea is thinking about doing some duet projects next year, and you're on the list of people. Would you have any interest in something like that? It's <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> would you have any interest? I was yeah. like, yes, sign me up. And so I was the first person who said yes, you know. And I, I so so he said, okay, well, let's do something. So we booked this session. I'm going to come out there. He's sending me this music, which I'm trying to decipher from MIDI files and trying to figure out how to play. And we have a week to do it. You know, we're going to do it. And I think. Well, five days. I was used to making records with the Flectones where we had months. You know, we could just take our time. Just when we were done, we're done. And then I get there and what about rehearsing? Well, we'll meet up the night before. So we meet up in a hotel room and we play for an hour. And he says, I think that's good. I'm like, oh my God, how are we going to do this? And then as he's leaving, he says, oh, by the way, I think we can record and mix this record in those four or five, five days. And now it's getting down to four, you know, four or five days. I'm like, oh. But somehow we did it, you know, we just went in and just tune after tune, got the arrangements together, just did them. And one after another, they turned out really good. And we did the whole thing. We, I mean, Drive was made in three days, but that was with a bunch of guys, a bunch of music I knew how to do, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'm always surprised when I hear it back because I have that feeling of fear every time it comes up that I'm, I'm going to listen and be really disappointed. But it's it's the moment, you know, that's what happens when you do something fast. You get some a different benefit out of it. Uh, and if you do something slower, you can get another benefit out of it. You know, there's different things. He was a guy who was always trying new things. Yeah. And you were a guy that's always trying new things. I, I think I've, I've seen interviews where you've said, I just want to get on to the next thing. And my record label's always saying, how about a bluegrass album? Where does that drive come from? With me? Yes. Well, well, I, I have to say, one of the things that was very inspiring on that Chick session is the minute we finished the last song of, of the last track, which was a t- tune called Mountain, it was the last thing we cut... I put the banjo in the case. Chick went into the other room, pulled out the music for his next project and started practicing. Wow. <laughs> That's a little scary. And I went, wow. Yeah. I want to be like that. You know, this yeah. was in my, I guess, early 30s. And you're like, I had a bottle of wine, I thought. Yeah. Well, this was before the wine. <laughs> this was the wine was <laughs> a few decades later. 
But no, um, I've, I always always thought you're supposed to do that. And, you know, talking about the Beatles, you know, they just kept changing. Every record was like all, almost like a new band. I thought that's what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to like create something and then keep doing it. Like that's what Bill Monroe did. He created Bluegrass, you know, and on the seventh day mm-hmm. he rested. But then he kept playing it the same way. He would always try to find guys who would play it like the original band, more or less. Yeah. Although there was some variation, of course. But he, his idea was I've created it and now we will do it. And then there's other people, other artists that continue to change their whole lives, you know, and um, I like that idea because that's what the Cool Cats were doing. That's what Chick Corea was doing. That's what the Beatles were doing. That's what Led Zeppelin was doing. The people that were around that I saw were growing and changing. From the Carnegie Hills of Manhattan. (laughs) Thank you so much. My pleasure. That was wonderful. It was great talking to you. It was fun. Great. It was great talking to you. Just great. Thanks to Bela Fleck for explaining his lifelong love for the banjo and sharing a song off his new album, My Bluegrass Heart. To hear the album along with our favorite Bela Fleck songs, check out the playlist at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast, where you can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Ben Tolliday, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez, with engineering help from Nick Chafee. Our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you like this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Did you catch Season 3 of This is Digital? Season 3 of This is Digital goes behind the scenes to reveal how digital trends show up in everyday decisions and actions, including digital lessons from the EV revolution and the chief digital officer's role in disruption and culture, featuring guests like Ekta Chopra of Elf Beauty and Tyson Jomini of J.D. Power. Do you have a digital mindset? Find out by checking out the latest and greatest on Season 3 of This is Digital and learn more at westmonroe.com. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better.
Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today.